This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to the show. Welcome to a special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. This is Cade Massey hosting today. Going to share with you a few conversations that we had over the weekend up in Boston recently at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. This was the 12th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It is, it is the gathering. It is the industry gathering for sports analytics. It started out in a classroom 12 years ago, just a handful of people, maybe 30 people. And now it's 3,000. This thing has gotten com- completely out of control at the big convention center there in Boston. This thing is sponsored by all kinds of organizations. There are live TV broadcasts from Bloomberg. ESPN's there. Everybody from the industry is there. Teams are there. It's been a, a, a great experience. It's been a great way to grow the, the field. It's been a great professional opportunity for people who have gotten jobs there, relationships based there, new work's done there. So we popped up there to talk to some of our favorite guests and some folks that we've never had a chance to, to have on the show. And what we're going to share with you in this special presentation is, is about eight of those interviews. In each half hour, we have two pairs. And in the next half hour, we talk to Ben Palomar. Ben is uh, the head of analytics, head of sports analytics there at ESPN. And he's been on our show a couple of times. We've never been able to sit down with him in, in person. We talked with him about what it's like to run analytics at ESPN, some of the challenges he faces convincing even people within ESPN to use more of their sports analytics, but also some opportunities. So some opportunities, for example, around spatial analytics and, and the new the new tools that are being used, um, opportunities around artificial intelligence and some of the more sophisticated stuff that's being used. Interesting conversation with Ben. Before that, we sat down with another ESPN employee and on-air personality, Mina Kimes. Mina is an investigative journalist with ESPN. She has a number of jobs around there, including doing a podcast with Bill Barnwell. Bill's well-known in the sports analytics field as a, as a writer and, and user and evangelist of sports. Terrifically interesting conversation with Mina about her use of data and numbers. She considers them a starting point, not an end in and of themselves. And uh, we'll kick the show off with our conversation with Mina. This is Cade Massey coming to you from the Listen Live Podcast Center, presented by Bose at the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm talking to Mina Kimes this morning, who's just joined us, flew in from the West Coast yesterday, I assume. Mina, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about being at the conference at all. Have you been here before? <laughs> or is this your first time? I have not. I, I wanted to go last year. I was asked to do a panel, and I think I was traveling on the road for a story I think an NFL story at the moment, so I was very sad about missing it and excited to come. You were sad about missing it, excited this year. Why is that? What is it about the conference that excites you? Huh. Well, so I have kind of an interesting job at ESPN, and well, I have a lot of jobs mm-hmm. at ESPN, but my main jobs, I think, are um, writing features, often about football, but mm-hmm. narratives about a wide variety of things, and then talking about football uh, and using analytics and various Mm -hmm. tools that we have available to us at ESPN to talk about it in a Mm -hmm. certain way. And those things, I think, inform each other because sometimes my story ideas or the way I approach narratives, even if 
they're not very numerate or there's only a few sort of parts of the story that even address those mm -hmm. subjects. They're very much informed by how I look at the game. Well, can you say more about that? A couple of your big pieces recently had, it seems, it, it, it felt to me there was a little bit of a parallel between your piece on Tyrod Taylor in the fall and the more recent piece on the decline in NFL attendance. Because both in both cases, you go in and you say the data are ambiguous. <laughs> it's like you, you dig deep and you can make a case for either Tyrod Taylor is a good NFL quarterback or that he's not. And then with NFL attendance, you're like, well, some data say things are going to hell and some data yeah. say things are fine. In both cases, it's like data. It kind of felt like you didn't find data helpful. Well, so my background, I should add, is as a business journalist. I've only been okay. in sports for a few years. Mm -hmm. I worked at Fortune magazine um, and Bloomberg News mm -hmm. where I was doing investigative work. So I think people always ask me, did that help at all? And I said, well, not really, because I no longer look at the stock market or anything like that. But it helped in so far as that my approach has not changed a lot, which is I do tend to look to data to try to find answers to basic questions. And then if okay. I don't, I find that almost more interesting than if I did. And right, I kind of wonder, right, well, right. why is why can't this be answerable? Um, so, I, yeah, it's, it's a rare story where I don't take that approach towards truth. Okay. You said this thing, you said this thing in the Tyrod Taylor piece about data. You said it's something like statistics are like partial quotes. They're pliable depending on what you yeah. want to do with them. That, I'm sure that's true, but some people use that as a way of like undermining statistical analysis or statistical analysis in sports. You know, people, you know, you hear these big execs who don't like stats say, well, they don't mean anything because of this or because of that. What's your position as a data user, but not necessarily a data scientist on that? You're always trying, so when I read a story, and that's less how I use statistics and more about how I regard them when I come across them, mm -hmm. whether I read a story or um, a scouting report, which is something we're all dealing with right now, approaching the NFL draft, and we're seeing these numbers, and we're seeing, okay, a completion percentage for a quarterback, and it falls below a th certain threshold, and it's when, when do you stop? When do you keep asking? Okay, well, that's not... Is that really useful information? Mm -hmm. What else do we have to find out about that's behind this number? Mm -hmm. And what do his weapons look like? What kind of situations was he in? What kind of offense do they run? So I see them always as a starting point. Okay. The problem is, you know, many stories treat them as an end and sort of a definitive answer. So I, right. for me, it's always um, regarding I, when I see numbers, I know that they can be used different ways and sometimes they're used to bolster arguments. And my intention as a reader or sometimes as a writer is to always un, sort of reverse engineer that or okay. try to understand what's the intentionality. Okay. Do you think there's room for us to improve the way journalists use data? So it would be great if more journalists thought about data in the way you're describing. You come at it from, what did you study at Yale? English. Oh, okay, so it wasn't <laughs> economics. All right. So you, at the very least, maybe you're geared up that way, but then you go into business journalism yes. and it helps a lot that. But the way you're talking about it, I'm guessing isn't the way a lot of journalists think about data. Can could we can we bring them in for a workshop? Can we spend a week with them? Is there a, what's the best way for us to kind of bolster the use of data or at least the interpretation of data among traditional journalists? I think to explain to people that it's not intimidating. Like when I was a business journalist, there were a lot of financial markets writers who were very intimidated by the idea, oh, I have to build a DCF model. You don't have to build a DCF model. I mean, if you're Andrew Ross Sorkin and you want to brag about it, maybe. But, like, for the most part, you, okay. you don't have to do, you know, advanced um, economics or anything. Like, you just need to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. So you have to know what the numbers mean when you see them. 
And um, and then you have to learn, well, then what? Why mm-hmm. do they look like this? Mm-hmm. What? And, and I think the same thing is true for sports, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I'm on True Media all day looking at trends and teams and the kind of plays they're running and who's been successful and who's mm-hmm. not been successful in certain situations. Mm-hmm. I'm not building anything. I'm mm-hmm. not – everything's quite easy to read. It's all about, okay, asking the questions that emerge mm-hmm. from the data. And they're mm-hmm. very, it's very, very useful for storytelling. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, you do a podcast with Bill Barnwell. Bill is one of, as far as I'm concerned, I think many people, he's one of the best out there. And one of the reasons is because he's good with data, but it's not just good with data. He's also a hell of a journalist and a hell of a writer. Great writer. One, how did you guys get hooked up? And then what have you you learned from working with him? I met Bill, gosh, it was before I was even working at ESPN. It was when I was a business journalist and I was... A business journalist, very serious, hard-hitting stories on companies. But mm-hmm. then I would I spend all day sharing dumb football memes, or in my <laughs> private time on like obscure Seahawks forums okay. Okay. about you know what practice squatter we should cut and that kind of thing. So I had this kind of weird side life. Okay. So he used to do a podcast with a guy named Robert Mays, also wonderful, and they had a live show in Brooklyn and said, "Hey, we're looking for uh, you know a third uh-huh. guest." And that's how he, they invited me. You clearly have this weird fascination. Would you like to join us? Okay. And that's how I met him. Okay. And how long have you been doing that with him now? Um, we've been doing it a couple years. They, ESPN started a new football-focused podcast called the Nickel Package Podcast okay. that Bill, I do with Dominique Foxworth, who I also yeah. do a radio show with, yeah. who's also very terrific and mm-hmm. very data-focused in his analysis. And um, part of a kind of a small small group at ESPN. Do you think your do you think your work, your other work, say your investigative journalism or your work on other ESPN platforms is any different because of having worked with Bill or Dominique or these guys who are a little bit more data focused? Yeah, I think the way I look at the sport is different. Yeah. I mean what's an example? Choosing to write about Tyrod Taylor is ah. my story before that, so I usually do a few NFL features every year for the magazine. I did a story in September or August that was about Aaron Rodgers that was not either not football focused, not football focused and numerate at all. Okay. Um, because there's really not a lot to be said yeah, about, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm going to tell you guys if Aaron Rodgers <laughs> is good, get ready for the case. No, but that was much more about his personality. Okay. Um, you know, but a story like Tyrod Taylor or some of the other athletes we've looked at over the years, um, that, that was driven by numbers questions and, mm-hmm. and things that we were seeing or hearing about in that community. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was fascinated at the time by sort of the divide in perception that reflected the divide in how people look at football based mm-hmm. on statistics. So mm-hmm. um, it definitely informs my ideas and how I approach them. What room is there in, in, a, in an around-the-horn world? What room is there for statistical analysis? Like, How do you bring like actual rigorous thought? Oh, pardon me. Bless you. Well, I think I... I do remember, maybe I wasn't rewarded with points for correcting someone, I'm guessing it was Woody Page or something, on the Eagles actually having a easy strength of schedule, Okay. even though everybody was like, oh, the NFC is so hard, right, and I was right, like, right. well, actually, if you go through these, okay. and I, I remember that was not appreciated. <laughs> uh, but effective. Yeah, but with a show like that, it's a little different, right, because I'm not... Um, like I could say their DVOA of a team is something, but yeah. it wouldn't be sort of the I would audience. I'd then have to explain it to the audience and you don't really have time yeah, to do that. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's about kind of choosing things that matter and can be explained very succinctly. Right, right, right. So 
uh, just a couple a couple more Mina. We're talking to Mina Kimes, ESPN, and uh, you've talked about this background you have in like hardcore business journalism. Yeah. At some point, you shifted to ESPN. It sounds like you're a lifetime Seahawks fan and probably therefore maybe a general sports fan. But how do you make yeah. that shift? Yeah, so I, you're right. I was a lifetime sports fan, Mariners, Seahawks. Okay. Um, and even as I was a business journalist and on that career path, it was just an interest I maintained that I shared on social media. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece for Slate about being a football fan that someone at ESPN saw in 2014, and then they hired me mm-hmm. that month mm-hmm. away from Bloomberg. Mm. Was it a hard decision to make to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was 28 or I don't know at the time, but, you know, I certainly committed some time and energy and towards mm-hmm. one area of journalism, so it felt rather risky. I mean, I'd, I had institutional knowledge and sources mm-hmm. and business, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I still miss it sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, was jumping into a field that I knew absolutely nothing about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I, there's things that translate quite easily. Reporting is reporting. Mm-hmm. Asking questions is asking questions. Writing mm-hmm. is writing. But there are simple, like, little things that you have to learn, like... Mm-hmm. How do I get into a locker room? You know, they, you don't right. know if you're new to it. And some people grow up doing that stuff. So that, yeah. What about the, like the, sometimes we get given a hard time because it's just sports. Like in academia, there's a bit of a look down your nose because it's just sports. <laughs> What's, especially having made that d- transition from something yeah. that's taken seriously, universally like business to something that's just sports. What's your sense of sports in the world i mean do you have that kind of higher level moments where you go oh this is profoundly important actually. yeah i my favorite moments are when i hear from people who read my stories who aren't sports fans mm-hmm. and they explain to me why they found them interesting because not because i'm not writing for sports fans i am but i want the stories themselves to always be about something more than okay like tyrod taylor it's about so much he, he's on it wasn't like a huge part in that piece honestly he's kind of a quiet guy yeah but some of the themes and issues that he represented i yeah. think really transcend him or um you know last year i did a story on von miller and it, it wasn't just like what's it like to hang out with von miller you know, the, right. the the issues that come to play i think are what make these stories really interesting okay Last question. The draft's coming up. You mentioned that that's something you're keeping an eye on. What, I do. What I love the draft. About in the draft, amazing. It was in Philly last year. Yes. And it was such a ridiculous event. It was so much fun. It was absurd yeah. how they created this thing out of thin air, and it was just a complete ball. And there's, like, no real de- no harm done. Of course, it's frivolous and ridiculous, but it's no harm done. It's fun to follow for lots of reasons. What about this year's draft has your attention? The quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh it's already beginning. The you know, I mentioned earlier I like to do stories that are reflect large issues larger than them. You can take each of these quarterbacks and the way they're talked about, the way they're looked at, the mm. way they're analyzed is about so much more than these four or five bo- you know, mm. boys. They're boys, yeah, really. They're boys, yeah. And it's it's really interesting to watch it start now, mm. watch that process now. Mm. And it also tells you a lot about the future of the NFL, the way teams think about the position, which is evolving. Mm. Um so I like the draft as a chance to kind of reflect on that mm-hmm. sort of directionality. Mm-hmm. Do you, as a football fan, do you feel like you can look at these guys and think about them and discern for yourself who's going to be better? Like if you were the GM, who you would take? It's mostly, it's a shot in the dark, honestly. Um, this group in particular, I think yeah. they, they're all flawed in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a when I think of the top five or six, there's not a surefire thing mm-hmm. or a surefire mm-hmm. bust, which is also mm-hmm. part of what makes it so interesting. There's mm-hmm. no Andrew Luck, 
Um, mm-hmm. But there's no Johnny Manziel, who I think you know, we should have known in retrospect how that would have ended out, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. How many of these guys are going to go in the first round? We, we, oh, I always say less than it ends up being because, it, you know, we have to People wait. get crazy. There's still a few free agents floating around. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how Keenan, Bradford, mm-hmm. shake up, yep. obviously, wherever Kirk Cousins lands. Yep. Um, but beyond that, we've got probably one, two, three, anywhere between three and five. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick, if you had to put your money on one, who would you put? I'll, I'll, I'll give you my answer as well. Who do I think is the yeah. best? Mm-hmm. Um I'm a really big fan of Josh Rosen's game. Mm-hmm. Number mm-hmm. two for me would probably be Baker. Okay. Who's, so your, who's yours? <laughs> so I'm a Texas guy, so I'm, I'm anti-Baker just, you know, viscerally. Which <laughs> that's, is, that's fair. Which is, I'm just giving my subjective bias. But also because of Texas, we watched Sam Darnold have a hell of a game against us early in the year. Mm-hmm. And you look at the tools that guy has, and I have a hard time believing it doesn't translate. Also, I'm not as worried about interceptions. There's some analysis that say people yeah. who, you know, the willingness to throw is important. Um, and I'm deeply skeptical of um, Josh Allen. I've, you know, I've got these biases. You know, I can't believe you know the competition doesn't measure as much. Josh Rosen, it's all biases. It's just different kind of bias, left and yeah. right. I mean, Rosen seems like such a normal sized guy, normal guy. How could yeah. he be an NFL quarterback? So it's just one bias after the other. I've learned over time that I really don't know. I mean, I just have, have to I admit know, myself. We don't really I just know. don't know. It's so hard because I think. Perhaps one of the biggest lessons from the NFL season is how much situation affects quarterbacking, which has always been true. And people always, unless you're Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady, it's like, to me, you know, 90% team scheme. And, and that's why you can get a Case Keenum and a Nick Foles going that far, right? But, and it's still underappreciated. It's, I mean, yeah. write, write that one, man. Like every other year, write that piece because it's still underappreciated. Hey guys, yeah. <laughs> there's really only like three quarterbacks that are better, that can you put them anywhere. And I think the same applies to college. Yeah. You know, when we look back on... Uh, Lamar Jackson, who's probably the most polarizing draft prospect right. at the moment. Um, terrible situation, not scheme-wise, but um, just very bad teammates around him, right. lots of drops, things right. you might not pick up in the statistics. So. Right. Okay. Well, Mina Kimes, thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the conference. Thank you. Cade Massey coming to you from the Listen Live Podcast Center at the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Just sitting down with Ben Alomar. Ben is Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Ben, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking time for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Always glad to have you on. Ben's been a, a, a guest on our show over the years a number of times. He, I think of you as the boss of sports analytics at ESPN. Is that, <laughs> is that fair? I, 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 I do get to sit on top of a bunch of whole really smart people who do great work, and uh, they make me look good all the time. So, well, that's what Brian Brian Burke was just here, and he was he was uh, he was trying to flatter you on, <laughs> on, on Mike because because he knew you might hear it. But it is impressive what you guys are doing. I mean, you, you're you're identifying talent and building this group. And it provides a, I mean, Brian had pretty good attention before he worked for ESPN, yeah. but now he's got a bigger platform. He's got resources that he yeah. didn't have before. And, he, and as a result, he starts expanding into new work and new, even new sports. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you think about that group and what you guys are trying to do with it? Um, so the group is really interesting because, um, you know, when I got there, there were four of us. Now we're up to eight uh, total and we continue to expand uh, the portfolio of the kinds of things we do, the kinds of sports we, we look at. And our goal is, you know, the initial goal is to turn, uh, the massive amounts of sports data that ESPN has. We have the, you know, the broadest collection of sports data in the world, pretty much, uh, into 
useful and interesting tools and stories for our fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that was the main purpose. And so now, uh, so, you know, we do, you know, QBR was the first metric of the group and, you know, that, that gets some, some use and we've moved on. Now we're, you know, we do our college basketball power index and a whole suite of college basketball metrics that now get used with the, by the NCAA in, in part in their selection process. Mm-hmm. Um, can I know. just say real quickly, yeah. I mean, your, I gave some love to Dean Oliver on the show mm-hmm. earlier today because Dean was involved, even though he thought of as a basketball guy, he was involved with creating the football oh. index, the FPI. And it's, and it's one of, it's probably the, what we consider to be the best power ranking out there outside of our own, outside of, <laughs> Massey, it's outside of Massey Peabody. But we can tell by looking at it and working with it yeah. some that we're kind of fellow travelers yeah. and it's just better than anything else out there. But I'm, I'm saying this because, because of the platform you guys have, yep. it's actually really helpful for you to be putting forward sophisticated analyses, putting FPI out there makes the conversation smarter. It literally makes it smarter. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about how, how good it is and, and you, particularly our college football metrics are really, really good. And, um, you know, I was talking to Dean earlier today and we we're talking about, you know, when we're creating these things, we make them as good as they are because we as a team care about them to be that good. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, we could, I mean, literally nobody's checking our math. Right. We could make it up. Uh, and, and, you know, nobody would really know the difference. Mm-hmm. But, but as the team we have together cares so much about the work we do and how we go about it. And, it, you know, we put our, 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 our metrics out there. We compare them. We compete with people in, you know, prediction tracker and, yep. and all that kind of stuff yep. because it's a group of people that are really talented and really care about the work mm-hmm. they do. You guys are doing work with player tracking data now. Yeah. And, um, I think that's affecting not only what you offer to fans, but how you guys televise um, sports. So can you talk a little bit about Second Spectrum and what you're doing? Yeah, so um, right now, uh, just briefly so everybody's on the same page, you know, there's uh, on every in every NBA game, the location of everything that moves on the court gets, gets uh, tracked 25 times a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Second Spectrum is the company that works with the NBA to collect that data, and then they are the world's leader in analyzing that data, uh, the NBA data. Um, and they've turned that into really useful information that we can now use, um, and, and in a system that's really useful, you know, it's intuitive. Um, we can go in and look at the Rockets defense, the Rockets pick and roll offense, uh, is probably the best example. And you look at, at them and you say, all right, how, if you're a defense, how do you attack the Rockets pick and roll? Mm-hmm. And the answer is you don't. Like if James Harden or Chris Paul is running a pick and roll, you're pretty much out of luck. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that's what the data shows. And, and what was, you know, we had, you know, that, that's an insight that it's, it's hard to come to. And, and, you know, we, Max Kellerman was talking about this on the, on the air, uh, just yesterday, like, and, and said just that to, to Stephen A. Stephen, A., oh, you're telling me the computer guys are, you know, are telling you that you can't defend the Rockets. Well, no. And, and his response was great. Like, no, it's not the computer guys telling us this. This is what happened, and they, and they noticed it. Like this is the—that's what happened. That's so well put, uh, and it was perfectly put, and and it informs the fans. Like, yeah, this is a deadly offense, mm-hmm. and and you sort of know that now. We we know it on a level that that mm-hmm. we wouldn't have known otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, what difference have you seen in the way these guys? talk about the game on air it's just it's just interesting frontier you know we're always trying to influence people in analytics yeah we're trying to influence coaches or we're trying to influence personnel people we might be trying to influence fans 
you guys have the job of trying to influence announcers. Yeah. And I've talked with producers in a sport that I won't name at ESPN <laughs> where a real frustration is that they can't get the announcers to use their analysis. Yeah. So one of the things that's, you know, when, when you look at analytics and part of the reason they're hard to get used and, you know, we struggle with this with QBR all the time. Like it's black boxy. What does it mm-hmm. mean? How do I interpret this? What's included here? And, and that's a challenge. Like when you have new metrics that are, not intuitive they're not um named in ways that are obvious that are already part of the language right um with this with the player tracking data you know we talk about you know the rockets pick and roll we talk about points per possession like everybody knows pretty clear yeah points per possession like you know 10 years ago that was sort of points per possession was new but that's not new anymore we know about the efficiency already and so it's not taking a new concept it's applying that concept at a grand level of granularity that we couldn't do before. Yep. And yep. so more, right. so it's, it's easier to get some of this stuff used, even though it's, you know, the collection of it and the production of it is more complex. Uh, it's actually easier to do, uh, to get, get used than some of the more complex, you know, the, 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 the metrics that came before. Well, that, that's an interesting challenge. Um, that even in this day of data availability and analytic sophistication, you still need to render it as simply as possible oh, and it's still and it, and it is still possible to come up with really simple analyses that are insightful oh for sure because particularly when you're looking at something uh like defense where we don't really know anything about defense we we have there there have been metrics that have existed that have been okay there have been you know certainly coaches and and fans and and announcers have talked about defense for you but we don't really know they talk about James Harden's defense like Oh, he's terrible at defense, right? Well, okay, well, sorta. Uh, he, when you guard in a pick and roll, yeah, he struggles there. Yeah. But actually in the post, he's a reasonable defender in the okay. post. Okay. And so that's, you know, and again, we can bring this back to points per possession and, and get this deeper insight and understand this player in a way that's more useful than saying, ah, James Harden doesn't play defense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Makes a lot of sense. It, it's also a challenge for something I know you're going to talk about at the conference here. You're on a panel. Here at the at the conference, you're on a panel on AI, and yep. you know AI is just one of these buzzwords <laughs> that gets kicked around. It's because it's flashy; people yep. will, will draw attention. But it but the, but it stands in for a, a lot of advanced techniques and analysis. Mm-hmm. But they're basically the panels like, is AI the answer? Yeah. To what extent are you guys moving in that direction, and and how much promise do you think it holds? Well, I'm not sure Alan Iverson's available right now to <laughs> really get no. I'm, it's, no, a good line. it's a good line. It's you, a good should, line. you should use I'm, that one tomorrow. I'm, I'm, right, I'm right. hoping that I'm going to get get to use it first. Uh, right, you know, okay. Sam, Sam Hankey's on gotta, the panel. You got to jump so, in. Yeah, I got to get in there early. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that uh, it's um, it's definitely something that we're moving towards. So mm-hmm. you you had Brian on earlier, and he, we have the the you know we've been playing with the player tracking data in the NFL, and you know we're starting to play with some really advanced techniques to try and recognize events and what's happening and, and understand. Uh, how players act and why they act the way they do mm-hmm. in a way that you can't do with sort of standard linear regression kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are, we're definitely heading that direction. That's when you have levels of complexity like this and you want to answer questions like, how does this, this basketball player make decisions? Mm-hmm. Like that's not a, um, a, a simple straightforward. You need something that, you know, in, Sort of the the Venn diagram of, of analysis would fit in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Ben, appreciate you taking time out of your busy conference to sit with us, and uh, we wish you the best with the work you've been talking about. You guys are doing great stuff. Keep it up, and come back and talk to us and tell us about it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You bet. Ben Alomar, head of sports analytics at ESPN. 
This is Cade Massey coming to you from the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, sitting down with Kirk Lacob. He is, Kirk is the uh, assistant general manager in basketball for the Golden State Warriors and a vice president in GSW Ventures, a native of the Bay Area, working for one of the most successful basketball and, for that matter, professional sports franchises uh, around these days. And so we want to hear a little bit more about how things get done around there. Thanks for taking the time and joining with us uh, this afternoon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I know you had me above Obama on your list, uh, so I really appreciate appreciate you pushing him to the side. You know, I, 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 just, I just feel so bad for, for, for Daryl. He's having to really stretch for, 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 for talent at these conferences these days. Well, it's funny you mention Obama because he gave you guys a shout-out. You, you, mm -hmm. you must be happy with that. So for those who weren't there, he was asked the question, essentially, if he were a free agent and could go anywhere, where would he go? And they, they couldn't quite goad him into naming a team. He said he, he has friends basically all over, so he didn't want to name a team. But he walked through this way of thinking about it, basically saying, I'd want to go to work for a good organization. In short, I want to go to work for a good organization. And he was willing to say the Spurs are an example. And it's kind of uncontroversial because they have been so successful for so long. I think over the last whatever, basically Tim Duncan's career, they had the best win-loss win record and a number of championships. But then at the end, he said – you know, and there are other organizations, he says, Rockets, Warriors, Celtics, who are building that kind of organization. And I would love to hear your thoughts on the extent to which that's true and why it's true and how it's true at Golden State. And one of the reasons that fits at an analytics conference is that we too often underestimate the impact of organization, culture, decision processes, all the things that happen after someone's crunched the numbers. At a conference like this, we focus so much on crunching the numbers and we don't think about what happens downstream from that. And it doesn't matter how good your crunching is, how good your numbers are, if they aren't fed into an organization that actually knows what to do with it and can function well with competing views. We're under the impression that Golden State has a good has, has it well set up, but, but we don't really know. So can you tell us a little bit about your role there? And then do you agree with Obama? Are they building the kind of organization that, you know, you'll become that will outlive some of the players you have right now? Well, first of all, it's it's great to hear anyone, uh, let alone a president, <laughs> right. uh, say such kind things about your organization. And I think it, it goes a long way to his relationship with some of our players. He's, he's spent a good amount of time golfing with Steph, and he's okay. met Draymond and Kevin and, and Clay. Um, and and they, those guys represent our organization very well. Uh, I think for an organization to be successful, you need to have great people. And that includes the players. Uh, mm -hmm. It obviously includes your president, your coaching staff, your owners, everybody. Um, so it's it's really great to hear. I think I've always felt that our secret sauce is that we have really good people and we turn them loose. Um, we let them do what they're best at. And uh, I think it was two years ago we, we actually won an Alpha Award here at, at this conference um, as the best organization in all of sports uh, for analytics. And it, it kind of caught us by surprise, to be mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. um, I, I started with the team about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of my departments that I oversee is, is the analytics department. Um, and when we won that award, we actually only had two people. Wow. <laughs> That's it. It was, was me and, and one other, our manager of analytics, uh, Sammy Gelfin, who's, who's at the conference. Now, we've since hired a third, so we're 50% larger okay. than we were. Um, but I, I thought it was, it was very interesting when we won the award. Everyone wanted us to say, you know what, what is your secret? Mm -hmm. Why are you guys so good? Why would you win this award? And we, we told them, we said, you know, it's, it's not about the army that you have behind you. It's, it's not about all of the data that, that you're consuming. 
it's about how you use it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that really is our special sauce. We we make sure that we're a lot of what we use is actually publicly available, mm-hmm. um, or at least very attainable. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are obviously some things that the NBA teams have that that normal people can't get a hold of. But it's really how you use it. How do you communicate these things back to the people who have to make it actionable? Mm-hmm. How do you make data actionable? Mm-hmm. Um, that's really our secret sauce. It's something we're really proud of. And it was very important to us not to grow too quickly until we had a really good understanding of our processes and, and how to use these things. What's your impression of how a three-person analytics group compares to other NBA teams? I, I, I don't have a great sense of that. Yeah, I think that's very small. Um, really? Very, very small. Um, I mean, at least anecdotally. So I, I know the Sixers have got, you know, practically running a university down there, or they were at one time, and I think they've kept a lot of those folks. But, um, w- you know, we talk about the NBA have, as having kind of left over baseball in recent years as the most sophisticated professional sport league, at least in North America. And our sense is that most teams, I know for a fact not all of them, but most <laughs> teams have analytics groups. But it's interesting to hear that even those at the cutting edge might not be that big. There's just two or three people there. Yeah, I I think with anything, it, things are sensationalized a little bit in media. Mm-hmm. I mean, people mm-hmm. want to write a great story. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes you cherry pick information and you make an organization look like more than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there have been many articles about our, our organization that put us in a great light. And I, I think the reality is we're, we're just smaller than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we do do a great job. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, it's helped us be successful and hopefully will help us maintain our success. Um, but to act like we're some unbelievably, you know, advanced society, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the Wakanda of the NBA, um, we're, we're not. So what advantage you have if you want to, if you want to push analytics is that you've got sophisticated ownership. And one of the theories for why the NBA has, has leapt over baseball is that with the influx of new ownership and especially from financial services and venture capital, you've just got a, a different mindset. What difference do you think it makes that you've got essentially former venture capitalist with the final say in the organization? I, I think it's big. It's because more than anything, it's a collaborative approach, and it's it's one that's built on always innovating. Um, so the people that we hire are usually young, hungry, very, very smart, and, and we kind of let them go. You, you look at our general manager, Bob Myers, who's brilliant um, and one of the best people person people, I guess what you'd call them, people people, a people uh-huh. person. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that you've ever met. Um, he's, a, he's a great networker. You know, before he took this job, he, he was one year as our assistant GM. Before that, he was an agent. He had never worked um, on the operations side wow. of the NBA. Wow. Steve Kerr uh, was a basketball analyst and a GM. He had never coached at any level before. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. middle school, high school, college, doesn't matter. He'd never been an assistant coach. Um, but those guys have something in common, um, and that's they, they really know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are very self-aware. They're very entrusting of other people. Mm-hmm. And when they know that there's something that they're not great at, they're happy to look to other mm-hmm. people for mm-hmm. those answers. Um, and that makes it really easy to to bring things like analytics to the forefront. If you want to have a conversation, they're open to listening. Well, tell us more about Steve Kerr. There's a clip that I used some of his, I think it was last season, on the bench during a game with Steph Curry. Steph mm-hmm. must have been having some kind of off night. And, and he's showing him plus-minus numbers, Steph's plus-minus numbers for that game. He's saying, look, your numbers are good. It's just not showing up on your point total. He said, just keep doing what you're doing. And, and we're struck by, here's a, here, here's a coach not only using what might, you know, it's not the most sophisticated mm-hmm. analysis, but it's more, it's more than the traditional box score numbers. But he's using it real time to push the player to keep doing what he's doing. It reveals some level of sophistication that a lot of, a lot of analysts would be jealous of because their coaches aren't that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, 
even Daryl and the Rockets have had coaches that they had to kind of beat over the head to use their stuff. What has it been like working with a, with a coach like that? What difference does it make that Kerr has that attitude? It, it makes all the difference in the world. It's, it's really what we're getting to here. It, that's the most important thing. You need to have the right people in place. And without a coach like Steve, it would be incredibly difficult to get any of these messages across. I mean, you, you referenced that moment uh, from, I think it was last year, mm-hmm. which was terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a moment last night where pregame, they're asking him, why have you changed your starting lineup? You guys are 44 and 14. You're doing a great job. Um, and he said, you know, we, we haven't been getting off to good starts. And in fact, if you look at our first quarters this year compared to last year, last year we had a defensive rating of about 100 um, in the first quarter, the first five minutes of games. And this year, it's 115. So I need to figure something out. Wow. Um, and he had spent a lot of time with Sammy, our, our manager of basketball analytics, to, to look at ways to improve it. And basically what he found was it wasn't a scheme thing. It, it was not a player personnel thing. It was an energy thing because mm-hmm. those same players did great in the third quarter. Mm-hmm. We've always mm-hmm. been a great third quarter team. Mm-hmm. So it's not like that group wasn't working. It's that we had no spark. Yep. Um, and so he, he looked across, you know, who has provided a spark for us all yep. year long? Where yep. do you see a, a jump in, in the numbers? And it was JaVale McGee, a guy who has been in and out of the rotation, and JaVale starts the game, and you could see a – I mean, anecdotally, yeah, with your yeah, eyes, yeah. you could see a difference. Oh, that's great. Um, and, and obviously it made a difference in, in the game as well. That's great. Terrific, terrific example. All right, listen, Kirk, thank you. I know you've got a busy conference. Appreciate your stepping aside and, and filling us in a little bit, giving us some insight into one of the great uh, organizations out there. Wish you the best with the conference. Wish you the best with your work. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Cade Massey coming to you from the Listen Live Podcast Center, presented by Bose at the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Just sat down with Sandy Wheel. Sandy is Director of Sports Analytics at the Kronke Sports and Entertainment Company, Corporation, Organization. The Kronke family owns, some of you may know this, but the Kronke family owns the Los Angeles Rams, the Colorado Avalanche and the Denver Nuggets. So it's a, it's a, oh, and they have a soccer team, MLS team, the Rapids, also located there in Colorado. So they've got four professional sports organizations in four different sports. And Sandy sits on top of the sports analytics group across the entire organization. Sandy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Cade. Sandy, we, we, background on Sandy, by the way, he, he did a variety of things before landing in professional sports, but, uh, but among other things, I know he, he held the job with the Baltimore Ravens mm-hmm. before the Kroenke organization poached you and, and kind of induced you back to the West. I know that you, you originally, you were living there when you moved to Baltimore. And it's when, in my experience, once someone has Colorado in their blood, you never <laughs> really get it out of your blood. Yeah, totally. We were living in Boulder for about a dozen years and I had been a as I call it, a severely underemployed sports statistical analyst for a few years and uh, doing some research. Working well, and you had a paper here during that, during that three time, years, right? Three times, yeah. We actually were the first people ever to present research here. My partner, John Heisingen, and I, we approached Daryl and said, hey, could, could we come present research? And they said, sure. <laughs> they were, and they, they s- were creating it at the time, right? They so didn't they- have anything. We, right. we, the, we spoke at lunchtime opposite some other group of you know yeah. some consulting shop that was giving a presentation of these competitive advantage types of things they have now yeah like we did one of those uh, opposite one of them at lunchtime and right. we presented a thing about the hot hand you know my partner is an economist like yourself and right. economists really love hot hands um so we worked on that and um 
And then the next year, we sort of said, hey, can we come back? And they said, sure. And we got to just kind of come do it. But meanwhile, they had created a whole research track and a whole competition and all that that's, stuff. That's they just neat. add those things like that. That's neat to know. I didn't – I mean, that's kind of it's, – it's part of the origin story of yeah. the research track here, which – the the it's it's kind of it's almost sounds like a snooty thing to say, but I think it's mostly said sincerely. People come to the conference and say their favorite thing about it is the research track. I think that's definitely true for repeat repeat visitors. Mm-hmm. Like the first time you come, you come and you sit down and you sit in all these panels and you think, wow, there's really great stuff going on here, and I hearing all these cool things and mm-hmm. new ideas, and a lot of it's just exposure to a bunch of people who think the that's same right. way, right? That's or right. thinking about the same kinds of stuff. And then you come back the next year and you say, you know, the content in the panels isn't nearly as good as it used to be, <laughs> but it's because you're realizing now you heard the same thing last year, that's right. but it was new for you last year. So mm-hmm. you didn't realize they weren't saying anything useful last mm-hmm. year either. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. sometimes in the research panels or the competitive advantage group, you'll hear, you know, people are actually presenting something approximating research or maybe actual research well they're as you know better than most they're people in the research panels are generally freer to speak about these things because they don't work for an organization the, totally the panels you know they go and grab people like you on the football analytics panel which is going to happen in about 30 seconds from now right and you aren't going to be able to talk as freely on that panel about your work i'm not going to say squat <laughs> <laughs> and somehow they keep asking you back, Sandy. Yeah, exactly. So one of our challenges in, in this little conversation we're going to have is talking about things that you can actually be right. public about. And I think one of the interesting angles is the multi-sport angle mm-hmm. because we've watched, you know, sports analytics has really grown at about the same time this conference has been growing. So it's really been over the last 10 or 12 years. And we've seen people like you come into the field and really get their, their footholds and right. grow and have a career there. But we haven't seen as many move into multi-sport organizations, and it's a neat opportunity you have there. So as you move from the Ravens, where you're doing football, to the Cronkies, where you're looking across three sports, what differences have you seen and what opportunities do you think exist? Well, I mean, the sports are all different, they, but they all have some similarities too. But, you know, I find, like, basketball is definitely, of the sports we work on, the most active field, right? There's the most teams. Active in what sense? There's a, the more teams have more resources. There's already, it's already more, it's a more mature, in, like, state in of analytics. the art. In analytics yeah, and basketball, right. yeah, absolutely. Okay. And um, Which is interesting because they jumped over baseball, essentially. Baseball had a head start. I don't think they're more than baseball. I just don't have a baseball team to work on, so I don't know okay. about baseball. But I assume baseball's ahead of us, but... Maybe I, I mean, know. in some ways, some ways be. they may not be. Yeah. But um, so basketball obviously is, you know, maybe the slimmest margins, but they do have still the best data. Relative slimmest to margins mean the fewest edges to be had because everybody's working. Everybody's I think there. that's true. Right. You know, it's like like, you know, we have, you know, if we're our hockey team, we have draft models for a hockey team. How many teams have draft models that are? you know, are as good as ours. And probably it's only a handful. Right. And then how many football teams have draft models like ours? Well, okay, maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's two handfuls. Right. Uh, maybe it's one. I'm not sure because you right. don't know really what Agreed. anybody else is doing. But right. in basketball, it's probably three quarters of the league. Wow. Right. And now okay. maybe we think our models are a little better, but yeah. you know, they're gonna be marginally better. We're two percent better, five percent better, not okay. like 75% versus zero, mm-hmm. right? Because you have no model, like that's worth zero. Now, Sandy, it, that, that, I, I buy that completely, but there's an opportunity in basketball that doesn't, hasn't existed so far in the other sports, at least not as much, and that's around spatial analytics mm-hmm. and player tracking. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if a team really dug in there, they in could basketball, gen- they, in basketball, they could generate an edge that there's a margin to be worked on there. Yeah, no, I think I think that's there. But you know, the fact is, we all have we all have the tracking data. Everybody's had the tracking data. Everybody's probably had it for I want to say 
this is the fifth year, I want to mm-hmm. say. And then the teams that were early investors have probably had it for six or seven years, right? Okay. And so I think that the lowest hanging fruit from that stuff's probably already yep. picked yep. clean. Yep. And there's still there's still more to do with it, and there's still a lot more we can do with it. Um, but, you know, that's coming while well, we're crossing our fingers, hoping that's coming to football this off season, they've been collecting the data for two years right. now, and then they hadn't allowed it to come out, or we only got our own data. So you can imagine seeing eleven players on a football field, but not twenty-two, right. and so you don't. Act, it's harder to work with. So we basically kind of just pushed it aside and, right. and just figured we'd wait. And now it's starting to come, and or we think it's going to come, and okay. so. You know, we think we actually we think we'll have an advantage relative to the other NFL clubs because our group has experience working with the basketball tracking data. Now it's going to be different, yeah. But we also have some experience working with it. We kind of know what we're doing yeah, with yeah, it, yeah. so we're hoping we're hoping it gives us some edge. Well, do you, what do you think the potential for that data in football is? Do you, do you think? Do you already know? I'm not asking you to tell me what it'll be, but do you already have specific analyses in mind? Do you, do you think there's going to be much of an edge with those data in football? I think there will be. I think so. Um, I mean, I think the the main directions, you know, the way I look at it, and maybe it's we haven't fully digested what we want to do, but my initial take is like, well, what are the areas of the game where we don't know much now, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, or what are the, you know, can we, how do we separate the relationships between these players, right? Offensive yeah. linemen, right? There's five of them, and they're kind of all on the field all the time together unless somebody gets hurt, right? And yeah. so the quarterback and the five offensive linemen on a team that has no health issues, they they're together. Their, you know, their data are completely confounded. Essentially. Right. Performance exactly, data completely yeah. confounded. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, you know, will we be able to separate that stuff? We hope so. But okay. I, I don't know yet because we haven't tried. Um, you know, the defensive secondary, like, you know, really? I mean, you think about most of the data we get in the, you know, the markings feeds where people are manually recording stuff. Yeah. That stuff's really useful. But you still tend to get mostly on-ball events, right? right? Well, there's only one ball in football field, so there's 11 defenders, and maybe the ball goes towards one or two of them. You know? yeah. I still don't know what the other uh, – well, maybe I know some pass rushers, what they're doing, right? But I don't know what the other coverage yeah. guys are doing. And yeah. so trying to get to the point where we can have under some more understanding yep. what they're doing, I hope will be an edge. Yep. Sandy, one of the positions that gets a lot of attention in football is the quarterback. You guys are mostly out of the quarterback evaluation business, I'm going to guess. At least it's not as high a priority because you've got a quarterback that yeah, most people young believe in. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to teams going into the 2018 draft? Because this is a very interesting quarterback draft. And, you know, again, I know you're not going to drop into super detailed analysis, but right. based on your experience and based on your – now you've been in the league for a while, you've been through uh-huh. a few drafts. What wisdom do you, do you think you've learned and earned about quarterback evaluations? You know, it's it's a hard one. I mean, I don't think anybody really still understands the quarterback Isn't that position amazing? really Isn't that well. Ridiculous? You know? I don't think it's the only position in sports people don't understand, but it's one of them, I think. Well, and it's certainly, and it's, just, it, it, it's all the more striking because it is such an important one, arguably yeah. the most important. So, like, in sports. You know, I mean, we have we have a half a dozen different quarterback metrics that we kind of like, but we can tell by looking. I'm like, none, no one of these is sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all important, and you know, you've got this guy. This guy's really good at this metric and this, and he's terrible at this one and he's good and there's another guy who's good at this one and good at this one he's bad at this one and he's terrible or or mediocre or something right right? and so it's like well what is it about his uh, you know the scrambling running sitting in the pocket finding open guys like how do you like what's the right mix and it seems like well everybody's you know you can sort of add them up and sort of say all right yeah the guy's 
pretend to be good at a bunch of them or add to the top, but there's definitely some nonlinearities going on in there that yeah. I, we, we definitely don't understand yet. And the problem is the sample sizes are just so small in football. It's really hard to, to get to the bottom. So like if I'm, I, and I mean, when I was in Baltimore, Joe Flacco had been there for four years when I got there. Right. And he was the quarterback my whole time in Baltimore. And I, you know, now we're here, we actually had a bunch of, bunch of pretty good quarterbacks over the last few years uh um in los angeles with the rams in yeah. st louis and la and um you know i i, I really think i know how to evaluate <laughs> quarterbacks yet but i tell you what though if i ever do figure it out we're gonna win a lot of games and <laughs> that's we, right that's right you make a lot of money well i love the humility i think that's the kind of humility that only comes from experience um it's it's helpful to hear one last question because i know you have to go tell you introduced me last night to uh, one of your one of your guys on uh-huh. the analytics team He's an anthropologist. He is so an anthropologist. So tell me what in the heck the Kroenke Group and Sandy Wheel are, are doing hiring an anthropologist. Tell me about the, the, why is this such a good idea? Um, well, I mean, the main reason— By the way, terrific guy and a great yeah, conversation, but yeah. I, I think it's really interesting that you would reach out in that direction yeah. to build out your well, team. Well, his name's, his name's Lane Vashro, um, and uh, so, I mean, what led him to us was that he was a public basketball draft modeler, and he was publishing stuff that made sense. In fact, uh, you'll— randomly on different podcasts that I listen to, you'll hear somebody say, oh, and like when Lane Vashro published this, right? So he was like, in terms of draft-specific analysis, you know, he's not Dean Oliver who sort of started basketball analytics, but in terms of the field of sort of draft analysis, he's, you know, a a, a, a seminal figure, not okay. the seminal okay. figure necessarily. Um, but, you know, as an anthropologist, and I don't know enough of anthropology to, like, be able to tell you the quotes he'll say, but in the middle of conversations we'll be having to talk about stuff, he'll talk, start talking about, um, you know, just sort of the different, you know, he's just bringing in ideas that anthropologists just understand inherently, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I, sometimes you talk about, like, you know, the, um, you know, the, the Balkan region, there's a lot of really tall people there. Why are there tall people there? You know, there's various historical reasons why yeah. that's true. And then there's some or certain areas in um, sub-Saharan Africa where there's lots of tall people there. And, like, I remember he told me a story about how in that area that 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 women, like the men, they they find tall women attractive. So the, the tallest right. women are have been over, you know, tallest people have yeah, just yeah. For, for centuries been... Evolution been, has favored evolution them, Evolution has favored them, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden you have just a, you know, okay. the chance you have a seven, you know, seven foot tall people there is just higher than it is. And the mm-hmm. same thing's true in the, in the Balkan region. And so, like, I don't, I mean, that by itself isn't particularly useful piece of information, but, like, he just has that stuff in the back of his head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just about, you know, that kind of stuff, but other other related concepts in anthropology. Was I grew up, but I, you know, I was raised by an economist, so I'm used to thinking about economic ideas. And so, which are good models, in, but they're not the only models. They're it's not people, the only models. Yeah, I, it reminds me a little of a conversation I had at a, at a little at a little working conference at Google a few years ago, where one of the other academics there was a sociologist who studied like 12th century church, okay, or something like that, and what. What we became apparent over the course of the afternoon is someone who studies 12th century church is really creative about data. Right. And I think that's probably something that happens with anthropology as well. They're working with incomplete data all the time. Yeah. And the more incomplete your data, the more valuable models are. And so it's it's neat for me to hear that he's incorporating some of those models, bringing some of those models into player evaluation in a way that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good. He's good to have. Sandy, thanks for the time. I know you got a busy conference. Appreciate you stepping away and joining us. Wish you the best with your panel this afternoon. Thank you. And with the rest of the conference and with your work out there with the Cranky Group. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate it. Sandy will. Appreciate it. All right. So that's the first half of our show. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us. 
after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Special presentation of Wharton Moneyball this week. A collection of interviews we did with sports analysts at the MIT conference a couple of weeks ago. MIT runs a sports analytics conference every year. It's become the industry gathering. They've been doing it for 12 years now. It's up to thousands of people. Big presence from ESPN, sponsored by ESPN. This year, President Obama spoke at this thing. They landed Obama as a speaker of all things. So lots of folks to talk to up there. We sat down with a number of folks in this half hour. Two folks involved in a variety of corners of the sports analytics world, but especially betting. These guys have in common that they're that they're interested in and working in sports gambling. We're going to talk with Jeff Ma. Jeff is now with Twitter, but he's known for the 21, the book and movie around 21, the MIT team that kind of broke the broke the casino in Vegas. Um, but Jeff's been involved in the sports analytics world and sports betting world for years now. We talked about the history of MIT. He went to MIT, of course, and has been at I believe maybe he's missed one of the 12 conferences. So we talked about the history there about what it's like to work inside Twitter because he hasn't often worked inside the big organization. But there's a big one that a lot of folks are interested in in, and have used. And we also importantly talked about his new podcast on betting It's a podcast he does with Rufus Peabody called Bet the Process and their attempts to kind of educate the public uh, who are interested in sports gambling. Before we get to Jeff, we're going to talk to Chad Millman, Chad, longtime uh, exec with ESPN in charge of their work on sports gambling front recently left to create his own venture, the action network just off the ground. And they are positioning themselves to take advantage of growth in the sports gambling world. If legislation breaks, they think it might the way it might. And we talked about the importance of storytelling, even as we blend analytics and sports betting, the importance of storytelling. So in this half hour, Jeff Ma and Chad Millman, We'll kick it off with our conversation with Chad. Cade Massey coming to you from the Listen Live Podcast Center presented by Bose at the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Talking with Chad Millman. Chad, formerly of ESPN, something like 16 years. That is correct. 16 years of ESPN. Now head of media at the Action Network. And uh, Chad's a longtime uh, sports um, analytics conference goer. In various capacities. Sure. And uh, we, we wanted to hear, well, first, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your taking the time. You've got some responsibilities around here. I'm glad we could grab you for a few minutes. I, I thought of you because I was talking with some folks yesterday about this venture. You've got this Action Network venture. Yeah. And would love to hear more about it, especially at a moment in the U.S. where sports gambling might just become more commonplace and widespread. It seems very relevant. And obviously, it's informed by sports analytics. And so you're kind of at the intersection of a few things that are interesting. Can you tell us what the Action Network is? Sure. Yeah, we're a sports betting media network. So um, we're providing stories, videos, podcasts, uh, using a deep reservoir of data and research and tools to help people make more informed decisions about sports betting. Mm-hmm. Um, the premise is something that we're... Uh, part of the Chernin Group, sort of the media company. Um, and the guy who runs Chernin Digital, a guy named Mike Kearns, had this idea that he wanted to create this sports betting content company, mm-hmm. um, subscription-based, that 
feeds into the parallel conversation that's happening in the world of sports. You know, mm-hmm. um, as you know, there's a lot of people who are interested in sports and in, in, in betting, and they want to use information and data to help them make decisions that are more than just, you know, I know Jeff was just on the, the show talking about like what touts do and sort of the way people are selling picks and yeah. sort of just be smarter about how to get to a decision about how they're going to invest so when they want to do that. What's an example? You're contrasting it with what the touts might do, which is essentially this is my pick for the night or this is my best bet for the weekend. What's an, an example of something, an alternative to that that you're thinking about providing? Well, at the end of the day, look, like people want to know who to take, right? Mm-hmm. So the difference is like we're selling a lot of stories and we're selling an angle on a particular game that is steep, not dissimilar from what you would do, right? It's like we're looking at a lot of the math. We're looking at a lot of the analytics. We're looking at um, the history of certain scenarios. Uh, we're looking at how the public is betting a certain game and whether or not you want to be contrarian uh, and go against what the public is doing. Trying to use all that to sort of inform a decision and give people the full picture when they are making that decision so they don't feel like they're just taking someone's word for it. Okay. Are you... Are you going to deploy these assets against all the sports? What's what are your priorities across sports? What are you going to lead with? What do you what do you? See well, look, the this? NFL is sort of the the drives the bus for all sports betting, and so obviously we are going to be aggressive in the NFL. We launched our product on January twelfth. Okay. Um, you know, three weeks before the Super Bowl. Uh, we are made up of three companies that already existed that the Churner Group bought. So okay. uh, one was called Sports Action, which was an app that sort of does bet tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, one is a company called Sports Insights that had been around for about 17, 18 years and has a deep reservoir of data and tools and research and uh, has relationships with sports books around the world. So they are getting up to the minute changes in um, how many bets are coming in on one side of, of game or another. Okay. Okay. And uh, a company called Fantasy Labs, which was... Um, which focuses on daily fantasy lineup optimization. So um, we use all that to sort of inform the decision-making and try to think about, all right, NFL is going to be most important and we're going to have to drive the bus with that. But NBA is incredibly valuable because Mm -hmm. people are now thinking a lot about in-game wagering in the NBA. Um, College basketball, obviously around March Madness. But it's hard to find a sport that people don't bet on. You know, so right. we have to be available. We have to be able to cover all of them. Well, there's, it's also different internationally than it is in the U.S. Yeah. Are you guys already international? Do you plan to be international? No, like we're, we, we plan to expand and sort of have versions of the app that can be accessible and are sort of specific to international markets. But you're um, not yet covering Formula but, One or no. Monaco tennis tournament. No, we're take, we're picking our spots. Okay. Like obviously golf, tennis, soccer are places where we want to, UFC, MMA are places where we want to spend some time. What's your strategy for building out the ability to provide good information to betters? Like say football. So what are you doing in order to provide or in-game basketball? Like to, to that's a real capacity and it's kind of a scarce resource in the world. How yeah. do you, how do you get that? Well, you got to find the right people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like you think about the NBA, we hired a guy named Matt Moore who has covered the NBA for years and started a blog many years ago called Hardwood Paroxysm, which is steeped in analytics and data and um, converted that into a longtime job covering the league for CBS. And mm-hmm. he is well-sourced and he'll write columns for us that are about what is he hearing at the trade deadline and how are those things going to develop and then how does that impact future odds and mm-hmm. what you might – the decisions you might want to be making around there. So mm-hmm. you have to get 
people who know their sports and know the industries and understand how to interpret all the data that is available so mm-hmm. they can uh, write something really smart. Chad, how do you deal with the obsession in that world with hit rates, essentially, like with successful bets? I've, I've, I've been in this world just enough through Massey Peabody to know that as much as we want to argue for process, what matters to the folks that are using this information is often what's your record this week? Yeah, well, we don't lead with bets, right? So we're not leading like you're not going to find on That's the front helpful. page of Action Network. Here's our best bet for the day. Okay. Um, the prism through which we say we do all this is reporting. Um, if we do a column in the morning, called we do a column most mornings called Wake and Rake, right? And it's one of our analysts who gets up really early and looks at all the betting percentage data and tries to figure out, all right, there was a sharp bet on this game at this time at this price. And then he'll look at another place and say, all right, there was another sharp bet on this on the same mm-hmm. game at the same mm-hmm. price at the same time. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to collect the data to say, look, mm-hmm. this game is getting hit by a lot of professional mm-hmm. bettors. Here's the number it was bet at. According to our data, here's where sort of the optimum value is. If you're thinking about betting the game, this might be the side you want to be on. By the way, oh, oh, President Obama, just in the session he talked about, one of the, one of the prescriptions he suggested for people running teams was when you don't understand something, don't ask. just sit there and nod. So I'm going to ask a question I've never asked before. How do people know what's sharp money versus square money? Uh, well, we know because it's based on the books we have relationships with. A lot of the books are sharp books, right? So they are where mostly professional money comes in. Okay. Um, and you can tell by when a line moves at the time of day. You can tell by um, the sports book that it's bet at. Uh, oftentimes we are calling when we see a particularly big move and doing reporting and saying, all right, was this a big, you know, who came in and was this a sharp bet? And, you know, we'll get an answer. So the, the, the books obviously in many cases know whether someone's a sharp. Oh yeah. And, I mean, and, they know who's betting and yeah. so they know who the sharp betters are. Uh, okay. So that, that would surprise some people. You say that offhand, but I think folks who aren't as studied in the field would be surprised at the extent to which it's not an anonymous enterprise. Anymore. No. Not at all. I mean, you can't bet anonymously. You have to bet uh, through an account or, you know, obviously online you're betting through an account and you can't sort of deny who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you can book to faces, though, in Vegas. And that's sort of uh, I could walk up to a sports book counter and bet on a game. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to move the line. But mm-hmm. if people knew you and they knew you were Massey, then you might go up to the counter and you might move a line mm-hmm. whether you bet 500 or 5,000. Right, 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 right. Okay, last question for you. Curious about the move. Um, this, you know, we talk to analysts all the time who consider moving from one organization to another. Career decisions are a big one. Yeah. A big conversation around around the Wharton School. How did you think about your decision to move from ESPN to the Action Network? It was really hard. Uh, it was agonizing. Actually, it took several months. Um, I've been first approached by Mike Kearns and the Churning Group in late April of 2017. Uh, we had several conversations over a few months. And um, some of the factors were, uh, A, the Supreme Court taking the case Mm to um, hear if New Jersey, to hear the New Jersey case um, to legalize sports betting. I figured if they took the case, they had an opinion already. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that to me meant that legalization might come faster. Mm -hmm. Sports betting, you know, I wrote a book about it in 1999 and Mm -hmm. I uh, have covered it 
ever since and started when I was running ESPN Digital and mm -hmm. started a section called ESPN Chalk. And when I was editor-in-chief of the magazine, we did a gambling issue. So it's something I've been passionate about for a long time, which is why the, the churn and folks called me to begin with. Um, but I just sort of felt like I've been at ESPN a long time. I'm really comfortable as sort of tumultuous it is there, as it is there, I know what the landscape is. I right. know what like the paths are. I know what the jobs are. Um, and this is sort of brand new mm -hmm. in a space that I'm really passionate about, mm -hmm. in a space that I think is ripe for growth uh, with a group in the churning group that is best in class and uh, makes really smart decisions and are really mm -hmm. good people. So if I was ever going to sort of take a chance to chuck it all, uh, this was it. Got it. And so Got that's it. why I made the decision. All right. Well, listen, appreciate your stepping aside from the conference and spending a few minutes with you. Um, wish you the best with the work. Thank you, sir. Uh, and hope to see you around again. Me too. Chad Millman, appreciate you being here. This is Cade Massey coming to you from the Listen Live Podcast Center presented by Bose at the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Sitting down now with Jeff Ma, just known for many things, but currently he is vice president at Twitter, vice president of analytics and data science. Jeff is a longtime presenter, panelist, moderator here at the conference, and we're delighted you took a little time to step aside and talk with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, glad to be here. Something you've done this fall for the first time is a podcast with a colleague of mine, yeah. a, buddy, a mutual friend yeah. of ours. Yeah, we're like a love triangle, the three of us. <laughs> we yeah. We're missing Rufus. He's yeah. off in South Africa or something right now. Yeah. But you and Rufus have done this this podcast in the fall, and you're talking about I'll let you describe it. My, yeah. my sense of it is talking about betting on professional sports in college, I mean, professional and college yeah. football. But there was also kind of, I know some of the backstory was you wanted to, you wanted to help people navigate the kind of shady world of, you know, um, of sports betting. Right. Basically. You wanted to provide people some insight that was actionable so, as opposed to selling something. Yeah. So both Rufus and I spent time on ESPN on air as a predictive analytics expert, right? And so what we were doing in that forum was doing these two-minute ESPN Sports Center hits where we were basically talking about sports betting. And essentially what we were doing was we were giving picks, right? And that's because that's what the producers wanted. I don't think either of us felt comfortable with that. I don't mm -hmm. think either of us flourished in that environment. Like, it wasn't the best forum for us. So we both kind of looked each other in the face and said, well, let's do something together, and let's try to do it in a format that we think we can do well in, which is a podcast format, which you have a little bit more time to explain things. And then let's focus it on the process of, of how we come to, you know, analytics around sports rather than the actual result, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than giving picks, let's really focus on the process of it. So we, it's called bet the process. Good, good moment to pimp. Yeah. Exactly. It's called bet, bet, bet the, the process. process. And it's really all about sort of the process behind, um, how, you know, we come to the, the picks that we, we do and, um, we have different segments in it and we sort of go back and forth and, and, you know, Rufus is a beautiful mind. Like he is, <laughs> he is like, I'm, I'm sure right now in South America, he's drawing, uh, South Africa, sorry. He's drawing equations in the sand as he goes around this safari mm -hmm. because he has some idea. I mean, he's a very brilliant man and to sort of draw out from him these insights while being able to, you know, interject my insights here and there, it, it's been fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that, like, I think we both hope to continue to do. I think what we wanted to do, since neither of us really needs to, like, do a podcast to make money, is do it on our own terms. Mm -hmm. 
And part of that, as you mentioned, was to sort of inform or to educate mm-hmm. the sports betting world because largely the sports betting media is controlled by um, those people that sort of sell picks because they're the ones spending the most marketing dollars and so therefore they're controlling the content. And those most of the people that sell picks are generally not they're not winners. They're not providing winning information. And mm-hmm. it's hard to actually provide winning information because if you are doing it, you're going to move the market and you're no longer going to be able to actually provide value. Mm-hmm. And people don't understand that moving the market half a point may be enough to take away any advantage mm-hmm. that you have long term. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's part of this has been about trying to educate the market. But the other part is just about being able to sort of talk about things in a very, you know, a, a way that's sort of on our own agenda versus like an ESPN producer's agenda. Well, let's hear more about that because you have just spent a year of doing weekly podcast where you're essentially learning how to better communicate analytics right. for the layperson. Right. I'm, I'm sure the show, I, the shows that I listen to evolved over the course right. of the season. I, I'm curious how you feel that conversation evolved. What, how, how did, what did you learn about that communication process? Well, I don't know if I, I don't know if I learned that much because it's something that I've been doing for a long time, right? I mean, like I give a lot of speeches. I wrote a book. This is all about, and, and really like my value in this ecosystem is not to create the best model or the better model or the better mousetrap. It's to be able to communicate it better. So I believe that that's my role is to be able to like simplify these things and sort of like really push these things into the mainstream. I think this podcast actually was like, in some respects, me trying to extract from Rufus in a lot of ways that, you know, that, that value where, you know, the two of us sort of hopefully bring the best out of each other. And for me, I'm trying to bring the best out of Rufus. Can I just say that that's a feature of it that I enjoyed because you're so often like I interview here, you're the, you're the focus of the interview. It's a little bit flipped on that podcast where you're kind of the host. Right. And it's interesting to see you in that role. And, and, and Rufus is this beautiful thing to mind though, right? Cause yeah. he's got a lot in there, but sometimes you have to work to extract it. Well, you know, the funny thing is like a lot of times he'll have like an, an almost like an argument with me or an argument with himself where at the end of it, I'm like, so you mean this? And he's like, yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, he, it, it's like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about, like we just talked a lot about the Super Bowl. And we talked a lot about the decision science in the Super Bowl. And that is the Super Bowl, for anyone that studies decision science, is ultimately like that was one of the greatest sort of like game theory, decision science, like cognitive bias, kind of like you can highlight so many moments. I could write uh, probably a 20-page paper Mm -hmm. on the decisions that were made in the Super Bowl Mm -hmm. and how they were probably impacted both by analytics and by human cognitive biases both correctly and incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. talked about that a lot. um, And I thought that was fascinating at least. And then we talked a little bit about more recently about sort of the concept of using analytics to look for match fixing um, or look for Mm -hmm. like fixed games, which is obviously very important as we think about legalized gambling in the U S right, right, right. Well, that's a big topic and we'll have you come back on our show at some point to talk about it. We just had someone on the other day about tennis because it's a problem in tennis. And, yeah. and we, we were left with more questions than answers. So we'd love to talk with you more about that down the road. We're going to have to run now, and we know you've got other responsibilities, but really appreciate your taking time away from the conference. Yep. You can find Jeff. You're on Twitter. Yeah, at Jeff Ma. That's really easy. J E F F M A. And the and the podcast we've been talking about is probably more active in football than other off-season. Yeah, we're going to be off-season. We're going once every couple weeks. So, okay, so bet, bet the process is bet the, the name process. there. Jeff, thanks for and taking And ode to time. Sam Hinkie. Sam Hickey, we pay him royalties for every episode.
What? Yeah. Oh, because because trust. Oh, yeah, we yeah, do. Yeah, yeah we pay him royalties. <laughs> yeah, royalties. Go ask him. Go ask him how much money he's <laughs> yeah, seen from us. Exactly. It's a lot. All right. So, all right. Jeff, thanks for the thanks. time, man. All Bye. right. We have just sat down with Dean Oliver at the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Dean, long time, mostly known for basketball analytics, so he's made fundamental contributions, frankly, and I can tell you a little bit about that in football analytics, but he's worked for various professional basketball teams. He was one of the leaders in sports analytics at ESPN. Presently, he's vice president of data science at True Media, and he's a friend of the show. We always love him having him on the show. Dean, good morning. Thanks for being here. Yeah, always good to hang out with you. Delighted to have you. It's always fun to see you at the conference. I've I, I don't know how many of these, five or six of these I've been to. How, how about yourself, and what is it that bring, brings you back? What keeps coming, bringing you back? Uh, the evolution of it, in many ways. I have been to every single one. Is so, that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I remember the small classroom from the very beginning. No uh, I remember the funky buildings and, and actually meeting uh, Ben Falk, who was just who was doing he was a, in high school at the time basically yeah uh yeah and, and getting him in to that first one and everything okay. and so yeah meeting a lot of the people uh, that hasn't changed is the meeting of the people the yep. venues have gotten bigger and now clearly mm. we've gone to political things yep. and yep. like wow yep. it's great yep yeah so <laughs> i don't know the backstory we have to find out from 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 daryl on on, yeah. on getting president obama in here but my goodness gracious that's that's you, you, where do you go from there uh yeah it does make you wonder <laughs> So is there anything about this year's conference that especially catches your eye that you're looking forward to, other than President Obama? Uh, actually, a lot. There are various students who've done a number of different research projects. I went to, I was looking at some of the spacing work on the mm-hmm. soccer side. And mm-hmm. um, the concept of spacing, I think, is one of the more prominent themes of sports now because we're able to measure it a little bit better. Yep. Yep. Uh, we've talked about the player tracking data for the last several years and some of the things that could be done. But the spacing is now a bigger topic mm-hmm. and and something I've thought about, done some basic work on before and just seeing different approaches. Okay. You know, when we think spacing, we typically think about the more fluid sports like basketball, hockey, soccer. I think the paper you're talking about looked really interesting mm-hmm. on the, using spatial tracking data and spatial analytics to talk about creating space on the soccer pitch. Yeah. But it strikes me, I'm, you know, I always lean football. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me that there's actually a pretty big issue of spacing in football, and it's one of the reasons for the dynamics between offense and defense over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years has been about Huge. the offense essentially spreading out the defense. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, the Chip Kelly kind of, okay, how do we spread it out? Spread them out so we can run down the middle. Because right, exactly. Because it used to be we can block them better and we just push them. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's kind of a form of deception. Football has a lot of deception and in many ways you spread them out so you can just right go up right up the middle if you were undermanned in particular and people it took it took the layperson a while to understand that because the spread had this connotation of little little passing all over the place high high number of attempts mostly short attempts and in fact some of the most successful users of the spread concept have had this very strong inside running game Mm -hmm. based on getting people out of the way essentially yeah and i've i've uh, I saw something the other day that came from a coach, actually, where they're using quantitative measures for the the stress that an offensive formation puts on the defense. Is and, that right? And it is, it's a fairly simple counting technique, but that's coming from non-academic people. That's not, I and mean, it's just coming from a coach. Right, and I right, think it's right. great. I think it's 
can you can you say anything more about that? Do- so what I saw was they were looking at where the routes are going for one thing, and there's uh, basically the over and under routes, and then there's also gap control. And so the defense has to account for the different gaps for the running game, and they have mm-hmm. to account for the different uh, areas of the field, basically, on the mm-hmm. passing game. Mm-hmm. So it looks at a formation and a play for how much of that all right. those gaps and all that spacing you have to, to account for. And wow. I thought it was very clever. And it, it being not, you know, longtime football fan, never coached football, and mm-hmm. they've gotten so sophisticated yep. in the coaching. It's I would I'd be curious to know what the range of possibilities are. Like what's the what's literally what's the range? What's the variance in a play that creates as many gaps or responsibilities to the defense as possible to one who doesn't do a good job? Is it, are we moving from? Are we moving from ten to twelve? Are we moving from nine to thirteen? Or is there is there are there some plays that are so poorly designed that they're as low as nine <laughs> responsibilities for against eleven team defense, eleven man defense? Uh, you have any sense of that so, kind of thing? So the numbers that they were putting on there. So yeah, you you're putting some numbers. The numbers they have for these stress numbers is yeah. so you count the gaps, and a lot of times it's seven or sometimes okay. higher than that. And then the number of zones that they go through, and it end it ranged from about. 13 on the really low end to kind of the 17 okay. number. and So they're all more than the number of defensive players. It's just how many yes, more. exactly. Okay. So okay. you end up looking at this, and, and I know there's going to be some variability, of course, in how well they defend certain aspects of it. If you've, yeah. if you've got a really good nose tackle, he may be able to take care of two of those gaps. Right, that kind of right. Stuff. exactly. But it's it's a, it was just a, a clever counting technique. Well, this is, this is – this is a theme in our world of sports analytics that it's often the simple approaches yes. that are the most useful. Yeah. I mean, look at the original stuff from Bill James, of course, mm-hmm. I mean, incredibly insightful, yep. but not, not doesn't take, in fact, the fact that they're immediately accessible, the yeah. coaches understand them, that fans understand them. What you're talking about is taking one of the most sophisticated ideas in football, that this, there's this dynamic between offense and defense and spreading them out. And, and you're and you're rendering it in a very simple way. Yeah. I mean, and this is I mean, people talk about you know, I'm more of a college football person than a pro football person, but in college, you're you're there more and more. They want these guys who can play kind of a tweener between defensive back and linebacker. Oh yeah. But I, I'm, in the in the in the language you've just been talking about, that's because they can cover two or two or three yep. very different gaps on yep. the field. You can exactly. be an edge, you can contain edge, or you can take a receiver. You know. Down, down, the, down the middle. For sure. Yeah, I think that versatility of defender, uh, size-wise, speed-wise, intelligence-wise, all those mm-hmm. things, it, just, mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. The ability to read what's going to be coming. and what, Okay, now we don't have to cover that gap, mm-hmm. for instance, right. because we wreck. Okay, We've we got to let some gaps uncover because yep. they can create more than we have men to cover. So we have to know yep. which ones to let go early. A little yep. bit at the snap, maybe, but then as the play evolves. That's so yep. interesting. Yeah. You, you mentioned on, a, on, a, on our show I think it was just a few months ago, something that really caught all of our ears. You, you talked about bringing models from other disciplines and other worlds to bear on some of these sports problems. So I think we were talking soccer analytics at the time. I think we got there because, you know, we bring on the show, we expect to talk basketball or maybe a little football. <laughs> Let me just say real quickly that the Dean was responsible, at least one of the co-creators of um, FPI, Football, um, yeah, football, football Power, Power Index, Index for yep. ESPN, mm-hmm. who we just think the world. This is one of the best power rating ranking systems that we know of and um and it's nice for people to know that that you you had that contribution not just basketball but when we ask you what you're thinking about right now you said soccer and at some point in the conversation you mentioned well i've been playing you know here's an example of bringing a a model from another field how about like 
the way water works through the ground or permeates through yeah. the ground as a way of thinking about space in soccer. Can you? We were all like, oh, wow. And we talked about it afterwards. I would love to hear you elaborate a little bit on that. I don't know if you're speaking strictly, almost metaphorically, or you, or you literally think some of those models might be useful. I do think the models could be useful. I spent a lot of time working on this kind of model in graduate school. And uh, if you think of the ball as having to percolate through the defense to get to the goal and go through ultimately the goalie, that, uh, that is in many ways what water has to do. The, the water that we drink, it goes from the mountains and it goes underground and it has to percolate through mm-hmm. and it finds the, the path of least, of least resistance mm-hmm. to get there. And in that case, there's a lot of force if it's coming off the mountain. It's pushing it all through this. But there's a spatial distribution mm-hmm. in groundwater that I think is relevant for looking at defenders. Mm-hmm. That spatial distribution of defenders, some of whom are more resistant, some who are not, right. and just the geometry of how they are. Okay. So I think, uh, yeah, we could probably build a spatial resistance model for players in soccer. So is it fair to say you, you've only got so many resistance resources to apply as you're yes. defending the soccer pitch? And so you're saying, well, some are more resistant than others. Yeah. Um, we should probably think, thought, we should probably be thoughtful in how we position the more resistant and the less resistant Absolutely. is this kind of the path that yeah it's um there's the the geometry especially the offsides line in soccer mm-hmm. really is a powerful tool so it's it's the players characteristics of their own resistance but in combination because the structural things yeah the structure okay. if they're all lined that is a very very powerful offsides line if okay. you have one guy defining the back of that offsides line okay that's a weak one so no matter how good the other guys are, you've always said, created this weakness spatially mm-hmm. that, uh, that soccer coaches understand mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a model of that. And mm-hmm. I think it is very analogous to what I saw with groundwater modeling. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about a, a different direction. The, there's some interest in the, dy- the team dynamics above and beyond the sum of the parts. And this, of course, is hard, and some people are skeptical. Um, but even those of us who aren't skeptical that they exist realize they're difficult to pin down. Yeah. So in baseball, it's something that's always given baseball an advantage. You can they're they're, they're less important there. You yeah. think that the, the teams are more additive, Absolutely. though. You talk to the Chicago Cubs, and they're going to say something was special about that 2016 team, that there was something above and beyond the sum of the parts. At least the, the, the organization believes it. Mm-hmm. But setting aside that, in, in basketball, in hockey, and football, obviously there are interactions. I mean, clearly Absolutely. there are interactions, and they're tough to capture. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any, anybody doing good work there? Have you seen anything? Do you, are there models you have in mind as you think about how you might tackle the problem? So I did a, a piece of work oh my god, almost 10 years ago at this point, on a, a sport called fresco ball. And what is fresco ball? Fresco ball is basically beach paddle ball. So you have two people who cooperate to keep the ball alive as long as possible. And uh, I was playing with my, my wife, my Brazilian wife, and I'm more athletic, but she was much more consistent. And I realized, oh, that's two different skills, mm-hmm. and we are cooperating to try to achieve something. I can do a fit model mm-hmm. for this. And the, the easy thing in that case is there's no defense. So it made the model fairly simple to actually build. Okay. But then you can look at this combination of athleticism and consistency to build a better team. And what it is, it really yields all these example cases where the sum of the parts is different. 
right. from the whole, whether right. much more or much less. Right. And um, it's it's very. Uh, I thought that was uh, some of the best work I ever did personally. Oh I my love gosh! A bunch of no sport kidding. That people don't right, know right, right. About. Do you, but you think there are some elements there that port to other sports? Yes, I, I do. I certainly I followed up some of that with some basketball work to identify what skills kind of go together. Yeah. Um, but yes, you have to build a model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, what's funny is so this this conference is talk data to me. Yeah, and that's their theme, and I. I try to tell people that data data is great. Yes, the more data you have, the more it can talk to you. But without models, uh, you really miss some of the message. You mm-hmm. have to have a model, and sometimes it's a theoretical model. Sometimes it's very simple. Mm-hmm. But um, a model, you need a model more the less data you have. Mm-hmm. This is a world where we're going yeah, with yeah. more data, so yeah. people are forgetting that you still need you still a need model. You so still need a model. So say more about that because you know I was talking to some students at a reception last night and. It seemed like every conversation in the first sentence or two was the phrase machine learning. Yeah. I mean, they're so excited about the methodology. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it does begin to feel like between the richness of data that are available now mm-hmm. and this new technology that most anybody can just grab off the shelf and use, yeah. you, you can just kind of, voila, figure things out. And those of us who have worked with data for a long time have are i think a little more skeptical yes but that said we may be a little more biased because we weren't trained in these techniques what are, what are your thoughts and what would you say to folks about the about the limits i suppose of machine learning so when i was introduced to machine learning also about 10 years ago um i i, I got some results and i asked, so what does it mean how do you communicate this what because if you go into a draft room and you say, I use machine learning to identify these are the best players, and you can't explain it, mm-hmm. you don't really end up with a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. You still have to be able to explain it. And machine learning can be very opaque in terms mm-hmm. of understanding. And that is the limitation. I think you can make it a little bit clearer. Um, but uh, I like the concept of these more theoretical models that starting with something. And I I'm not convinced. I, I think in some ways uh, the machine learning can beat theoretical models for some stuff, but I think mm-hmm. theoretical models that are based upon how you construct a team mm-hmm. could very well be better. But I I think it's a great skill. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I think machine right. learning is a great thing for people to figure out, but it's like statistical regression. Mm-hmm. It also can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. of these tools can be dangerous if mm-hmm. you just say, just press the button and see what happens. <laughs> it's almost never That's, a good approach. Yeah. Virtually never a good mm-hmm. approach. And you're right that one of the big challenges for an analyst is having impact in an organization. It's, yeah. it's beyond simply understanding your data. You have to somehow translate in, in, into a language that can be acted on mm-hmm. and is credible. And that's a huge hurdle. It's a, it's a hurdle even if you're not working with machine learning. And actually, it's a good challenge for our field to figure out ways to take these advanced techniques that are fundamentally harder to explain and and communicate them in a way that, that coaches and players and the layperson can actually understand. I always said that uh, 40% of my time was spent in making sure I could communicate mm-hmm. the stuff that I did. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot of time. Yes. You have to, <laughs> because you do have these models and it's it's spitting stuff out that you may understand and you know where it comes from. But to take these mathematical models of rebounding or shooting and all and say say it in coaches terms yeah. yeah they know how to get open they know they know how to make plays and make sure that's consistent with the models but also consistent with that's the right. way they think about that's right. it it's a little bit like being multilingual it's you, you being able <laughs> absolutely to, it, it really is quite analogous to that all right 
Dana Oliver, thanks for the time. Great to see you, Cade. Enjoy your conference. Hope it goes well. Thanks. Cade Massey at the 2018 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, sitting down with one of our favorite guests, Brian Burke. Brian is Senior Analytics Specialist. I think that's the title. Senior Analytics Specialist at ESPN. He's been there for, what, a year and a half, two years? Two and a half years. Two and a half years after making a name for himself as an analyst, just doing his own thing, coming out of the football world and now slowly expanding given the ESPN platform into other places. But Brian, welcome. Appreciate your stepping away from the conference for a few minutes to join us. Yeah, thanks. Brian, um, big conference. We're half a day into it. We're just post-Obama. What are your impressions so far? Uh, the conference is growing. There's too much walking. It's so big. It's straddling both sides of the convention I know, center. We have now. the other side for the first time. And I think I've I've put, uh, lost three pounds and and it's, walked it's 15 thing. miles. Brian, yeah, that's a good thing. It is right? a good thing. Yeah. Did you make the Obama session? And did anything about that jump out at you? Uh, un- unfortunately, no. I didn't oh, go. You didn't. No, I, I jumped on the grenade, and and uh, a lot of the ESPN crowd wanted to go see it, and I uh, stayed behind you, and manned the booth. You manned the booth. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was um, it was fun. It did get kind of serious in the middle, but you know something I knew that was going to happen. Not not having a lot to do with analytics is that he's got he's a good smack talker. Yeah. And Maury sits up there, and, and one of the things he does with guests is he talks smack with these guys. And sure enough, Obama was throwing down kind of uh, from the beginning and there at the end a little bit, which was fun. Yeah. But he had he had he had a lot of interesting things to say. One of them was around the importance of organization. It's not just about crunching the numbers. It's about culture. Many of his stories were the team first. He's like looking for players who sacrificed individual for team. And it's it's one of these things that's kind of tough for us as analysts to pick up on in player evaluations. Yeah. And coaches talk about the importance of it. Teammates talk about the importance of it. But it's tough to pick up on. It's kind of we're kind of forever searching on how can we identify ahead of time whether a player is team first or not. Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, part of the Patriots' uh, secret sauce is mm-hmm. intelligence in their players. Um, mm-hmm. I can't prove that, or but it's you part mean of intelligent players. They, intelligent, they, yeah. They draft and sign and recruit more and let go the ones let, that aren't necessarily. They they will sacrifice some. And I'm, okay. I'm speculating, mm-hmm. but I think part of the secret sauce is they want you know football IQ players, not not you know. Wharton IQ players. But, right, yeah. right, right. But smart football players, part, partly probably because they're asked to be flexible and play play in more complicated schemes, play cover multiple positions. Yeah, the, the, uh, a lot of the Patriots offense is option routes, and mm-hmm. it's very complex, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's you know what makes it go. Mm-hmm. So the Patriots, you know, m- many folks had them number one in power rankings all year long, including Massey Peabody. They they didn't quite close the deal there at no. the end. The Philadelphia Eagles did. And something that connects to you that I've wondered about since that Super Bowl, you were part of, I think we can out you at this, can we not? You were part of the fourth down bot, the New York Times fourth down bot, were you not? Were yeah, you? that's public, yeah. Yeah, okay. so the brain, I made the brain You made the, the brain of the yeah, bot. Somebody else made the, the Twitter part of it. Was that yeah. Kevin? Was well, Kevin Quilly, yeah. So we yeah. can out all of you guys. So it was a, it was a, it was a cool thing, and it, it kind of raised awareness around this issue, I suppose. I mean, I'm not, yeah. it's not a life and death issue, but in terms of analytics, it's for a long time been this, it's been this, this sore spot, I suppose, between the analytics crowd who say coaches make the wrong decision, they're not making optimal decisions, and teams and players who are following more or less conventional wisdom and not going for it that far often on fourth down. Your bot comes along and it says every time a team makes a decision in every game, we're going to tweet it and we're, we're going to 
basically call attention to these decisions. Yeah. And I really do think it elevated the conversation there for a little while. Oh, yeah, definitely. And in Buffalo, especially, for some reason... Bills fans that, latched on to that, right? that thing. Yeah, it was huge in Buffalo. I'm huge in Buffalo. Huge in Buffalo. <laughs> my, my bot is, yeah. Uh, definitely, I think uh, the Belichick 4th and 2 in, was it 2009 yep. against I the Colts? The year, but yes, it, yeah, that, that blew up. Like, uh, you know, everybody had their 15 minutes. I had mine, uh, you know, and uh, well before I joined ESPN, I was a uh, feature. Is that right? Uh, interview on uh, NFL countdown on Sunday morning. So I had, yeah, that, that gave me my 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the fourth down analysis, I, as far as I'm concerned, it goes back to Romer's paper that must've been yeah. 2004, 2003, something like that. And which is one of the first of the latest generation of analytics in football. It's really one of the first big analytics papers in, in football. Yeah. And we looked once to see whether it made a difference in NFL practice. Did more teams start going for it after Romer published that paper? And we could see just a little bit of a blip. We could, but then it came back down. Mm-hmm. So it was a little blip in the 2006, 2007, if I remember correctly, then it came back down. But the NFL is a copycat league, and Doug Peterson gets a lot of attention for his fourth down policies. Even going into the Super, ahead of the Super Bowl, he had attention for it. Yeah. And then he had these very prominent, successful fourth down calls in the Super Bowl. I'm going to guess that makes a difference in what other teams do going forward. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Eagles weren't the only winners that day, I think. Uh, <laughs> the fourth so, down bot was the other winner? Yeah, the bot. Brian yeah, Burke yeah. was the winner? Well, maybe not me, but it, folks like me who've been, you know, and Romer. Yeah, and, uh, Romer, and Virgil absolutely. Carter, who, yeah, you know, right. and Pete Palmer. Yep. And, uh, the, you know, the greats that, that uh, whose shoulders, you know, I stand on. That's right. Uh, definitely. Um, it all came together for them. I, uh, there's no way the Eagles win that game without – uh, those two fourth downs. Yeah. Uh, you know they were playing against a team that didn't punt all game. Right. Unbelievable. Uh, so they they had to, and they knew they knew that going in. I think they they had a, a high variance game plan, knowing that they were you know maybe slight underdogs, and yeah. everything kind of had to go their way to win this, mm-hmm. and it and uh, it did. Well, it it's it's a for better or worse, it's an example that you need to not only be right, but you need to have a little luck on your side. You need the anecdotes to break your way to reinforce the decision-making that the firm ought to be making anyway. Yeah. But if it's like, you know, working with a team on the NFL draft, you might counsel them into a certain draft strategy and they might even follow that draft strategy. But then there's only seven picks that year. You got to get lucky basically, because if they follow the strategy perfectly, yeah, they can still be, have bad luck, and then they're probably not going to follow it the next year. I did a uh, so after Sashi Brown was fired um, at, in Cleveland, uh, the criticism was he wasn't hitting on his picks. Yeah, hey, you're getting us lots of picks. That's great, but you're the personnel uh, folks and the scouts, and they're, they're just not choosing the right players. Yeah. It's a fair criticism. I did the math, and I think. Uh, as far as like pro football reference, approximate value, yeah, yeah. people might be familiar, AV, uh, I think you needed something like 200 and some seasons for the you know, noise to catch up with, or for the signal to catch up with the noise in, in draft, draft picks. There's so much variance. The variance is so high in draft pick uh, outcomes that to compare one GM with another, to definitively say with any kind of confidence that one GM is superior to another in terms of uh, draft selection would take some you know number of centuries or something like yeah. that. I, I can't remember the exact number. So this the only time I've presented a, a research paper here, it was on exactly this topic. It was you know the third or fourth year of the conference, and I presented on not 
on, on the, a team came to me and asked, which team should we be paying attention to? Wh- which team is good at the, at the draft? And we ran the numbers like, well, it doesn't look like one team is consistently better than any other team. It's just remarkable. There's just so much chance. It's not saying that it's all luck or that they're not any good. It's that they're equally good right. and that it's a very noisy process. But I love the way you're putting it. You're saying if you want to reliably distinguish between those who are good at picking and those who aren't as good at picking, you need something like 25 or 30 years worth yeah, of picks. It's crazy, yeah. So, so that means we should all be tempering our opinions on those things. Now, tell me, I think this connects a little bit to something you and I have talked about some over the years. It's kind of a profound way you put it. You were raised as an engineer, um, and then you went into a- into aviation with the Navy. Yep. And it was only late that you moved into statistics. <clears throat> and you talked about the different mindsets of an engineer and an aviator yeah. and a statistician and how profound that was. Can you describe that again? Yeah, I was raised uh, as a deterministic baby. Uh, I studied studied aerospace engineering undergrad, and not just air, not just engineering, but the but the space part of the aerospace. So a lot of like space vehicle design, space mechanics. I wanted to be an astronaut when I grow up. Okay. Uh, fell a little short, but um, but it, I saw the world in terms of the you know the billiard ball model, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, there's no chance; it's, mm-hmm. everything's just a, a clock unwinding, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's not the way the world works. At least at, at our level of observation. Right. In space, it might work. Yeah, right. approximately it that liter- way. It literally is billiard balls in yeah. space. Yeah. I mean, the moon is going to be where the moon's going to be. There's yeah. no uh, random variation in that, uh, at least for our purposes. So. Uh, that I, that continued in, into my professional career as a pilot in in combat aviation. There, it, it's a little bit like the sports world. There is, it's an extreme level of competition. We're not we're not the athletes that that maybe Cam Newton is, but uh, what what worked out well for me is uh, I, I had the competitive brain uh, maybe of of a uh, NFL player, okay. but I didn't have the the you know the muscles to go along yeah, with yeah. it. But when I strapped on an F-18 on, on my back and, and took off, I was, you know, we were all Cam Newtons up there in the yeah, air. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, we like to, I would like to compete and win and stuff. Um, and uh, that world is highly competitive and very dangerous. Uh, and the consequences of, of failure are extremely high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit like the NFL. Um, and so when there is failure, uh, accountability is absolute. So you just can't take chances that, hey, maybe this pilot, hey, you, maybe you just had a few bad flights. Hey, don't worry about it. You know, uh, you'll turn around. You'll regress back to the mean. Uh, Despite the fact that you believe that's still true, even in aviation, it's not like the moon. Well, in could, aviation, there is noise. Well, there's no guarantee that you're going to regress back to the mean. So when we do have, let's say, pilots like that, it may be time for, uh, for him to go find uh, – other work, you mm-hmm. know, on a submarine or, or mm-hmm. uh, on a ship elsewhere. So the, the accountability can be pretty extreme. We can't take the chance that you you really are maybe you, below you're, average. You're essentially going to accept some false negatives there because exactly. the consequences are so yeah. high. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. We just can't. We don't have time to you know uh, keep sending up a potentially you know below average dangerous pilot yeah. up in the air yeah. uh, enough you know for a sample size large enough to you know right. do a regression on him and right. figure out now he's no good anyway we just don't have the time but but you, as you move out of that world and into a world of analyzing professional sports what happens uh, it was eye-opening for me. So it was, it was a bit uh, like a religious experience. The Navy made the mistake of sending me to grad school and teaching me uh, probability theory and, and statistics. And uh, um, but at first, I didn't really carry it out of the classroom at all. But mm-hmm. once I left the Navy and, and started thinking about things more and I started uh, getting into football analytics, uh, it all 
kind of made sense to me. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so, for example, the, the better team is not going to win every time. That's just right. That's just not the way it works. I thought that until I was about 35 years old. <laughs> exactly. And and if when, and whenever there was an upset, they were the better team. They became today. the better team. Yeah. Like they were, we were the yeah. better team today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I think it raises an interesting question that. I don't know how people do it. This is a question that we should continue to talk about and, and maybe learn something from the people who have to live this life. But how do the coaches or the really sophisticated general managers and owners who understand that it's probabilistic and yet they need to motivate the players yeah. in a way as if it were perfectly deterministic and as if there were 100% accountability and as if there were no excuse for anything that goes wrong. You have to, those guys have to straddle that line. They have to understand the world's not that way, but then they have to... Yeah basically instilled that attitude amongst the people who are working right like uh you you might be a a very good coach and the problem might be your players but uh after a few years of you know very low winning percentage seasons the the stench of losing is on you Mm -hmm. and uh so even though i think you're a pretty good coach i might need to replace you Mm -hmm. just to you know change change the voice in the locker room etc all the cliches there but there's definitely truth to that we're human beings uh um you know, we're not uh, we're not data on in a spreadsheet. So uh, they have, you know, I think that's a, a valid action to take. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it, it just it adds one more layer of complication to the world we're working in where we can run our numbers. We can say this is the optimal you know, course of action, but it has to take place inside an organization. That organization lives in a city among a fan base. There are politics yeah, there. Right. Fan there, base there, big, there, yeah. There, and it, I, for, for me, one of the implications there is it comes back to ownership so much. Like which owners can withstand the fan bases when things go wrong and stand there and, and say, no, we're, we're following the right process. We believe in these people, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to withstand this. I'm going to be the person who takes this and stands in the breach while yeah. my people keep on doing what they're doing. Well, there, there are some... Uh, you know, legends. I, I call them the Obi Wan Kenobi's of you know some of these GMs. So Sashi Brown, of? you know Sam Hinky, right? Who uh, they're they're struck down. They're but, struck but down. you will make they're me even martyred. more powerful. Yeah, <laughs> and they will come back and haunt. And and so maybe the process doesn't change, but uh, but then you know the names on the on the office doors do change. Yeah. Well, um, I'm 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 sure Sam and Sashi will be will appreciate being called Obi Wan Kenobi. There, that's that's a great idea. That's a great idea, Brian. Listen, I, I know you've got a busy conference. Appreciate your stepping aside to spend a few minutes with us. Um, we love your work. You know we love your work. Wish you the best with it. Hope you have a great conference and good luck with all your ESPN stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Brian Burke, thanks for coming back. All right, so that wraps up our special presentation of Wharton Moneyball with interviews we did up in Boston late February at the 12th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. If you missed any, you can catch them on one of the replays. You can catch them on our podcast in the first quarter. We had conversations with ESPN folks, analytics and the mothership. First with Mina Kimes, investigative journalist there, and then with Ben Palomar. Ben, who heads up the analytics group, is building that analytics group. In the second quarter, it was analytics inside a team. We talked to two analysts who work inside the building, which is, is, you know, kind of the privileged spot. We talked first with Kirk Lockup of the Golden State Warriors and then with Sandy Wheel of the Kroenke Group, which is the Los Angeles Rams, the Denver Nuggets, the Colorado Avalanche, and their soccer team, the Rapids. In the third quarter, we talked about analytics and betting. First with Chad Millman. Chad has recently left ESPN after being there for a long time to start his own group called the Action Network, kind of positioning themselves for the change in sports gambling. And Jeff Ma 
longtime personality and analyst in sports analytics and especially in gambling together gives us some insight into the shifting sands and analytics and betting. And then in the final quarter, just off with Dean Oliver, formerly ESPN, now on his own with True Media, kind of a godfather in this field, frankly, and Brian Burke, a relatively new addition to the ESPN team, but a longtime analyst and one of the creators of the fourth down bots, among other things. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to be up there, a lot of fun to sit down with those guys. We'll be back next week with a live show. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.